Sorry, I wasn't hiding. I for, forgot to hit record. Um, <laughs> for the next couple of weeks, we are uh, looking at John's account of the resurrection, and we really started looking at it last week, too. And the, what we're looking at, and what I think John wants us to look at, is the effect of the resurrection on various groups or various disciples. And his account, as we have it here, is both historical in the sense that he's He's recounting actual events, and as he says later in the book, he wants us to believe. He's trying to persuade us of the truth of these events, but he wants us also to see the events theologically. That is, what the meaning of the resurrection is as God intends it, and how that meaning is derived from everything that has gone before in the Old Testament. Well, last week we looked at at John and Peter's reaction to the news of the empty tomb and how John crafted his narrative to draw our, our attention back to Moses on Mount Sinai where he was interceding for Israel as an atonement for his people. And this week we're looking at Mary Magdalene and, and John draws connections in this moment to the Garden of Eden and the Ark of the Covenant. Well, we're in chapter 20. I'm going to pick it up with verse 11. Let me read for us. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And, she, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go, ahead, go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, because without that, we would not have life. In his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, we have life, we have atonement, we have the future hope of bodily life together with you, and we know that even now he is interceding for us. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ. And Jesus, we pray that you would indeed continue to intercede for us in this moment, that through your spirit, we would have eyes to see and ears to hear from you, that we would grow in this word, and like Mary, we would respond to it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as we saw last week, the first people to the tomb on that Easter morning were women. In fact, the women who had witnessed Jesus die. And, and John writes his account, in particular through Mary Magdalene's perspective of that event. Now, Mary Magdalene, as I just said, was one of the witnesses to Jesus' death on the cross. And we know from Luke chapter 8 that she had come to know Jesus because he had cast seven demons out of her. 
freeing her from what can only be described as uh, extreme and severe demonic oppression, as if there's really any other kind. So Mary was a woman freed from intense evil by Jesus, who in turn, she loved him as a devoted disciple in response to that. And where we left off last week in John 20, John and Peter had examined the tomb, and then they had gone home. But Mary remained behind, and she was weeping because she believed Jesus' body had been stolen, which was a reasonable and and really rational type conclusion. And as we saw last week, Peter did not yet believe that Jesus was alive, even as John did believe. Now, neither man understood what the scripture meant when it said that he must rise from the dead. So you might say then that Jesus' disciples held to the doctrine of the resurrection in, in ways that were typical for their times. It's like what we see with Martha, for example, in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus, her brother, from the dead. If you recall in that scene, Martha says to Jesus that had he been there, Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus, in turn, says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he will rise on the last day. And there it is. There's that belief. Uh, Martha holds to the doctrine of the resurrection that on the last day, whenever that day would be, God's people will be raised from the dead. Now, outside of groups like the Sadducees who rejected the resurrection, many Jewish people, including groups like the Pharisees, believed in the future resurrection of God's people on the last day. And that's entirely biblical. Just follow the Old Testament. It's all right there. But Jesus doesn't merely confirm that this hope is correct, which it is, he shifts Martha's focus to himself by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall yet live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha's answer is really good. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So you might say Martha believed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done was happening on earth as it is in heaven right then and right there in Jesus, who she confessed to be the Christ, the Son of God, just like Peter does in Matthew 16. So as confessions of faith go, it doesn't really get much better than that. But she did not make the connection between the doctrine of the resurrection and Jesus himself, and neither did the 12. Jesus then shows her how he is the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus, who had been in the tomb for several days at that point, by raising him from the dead. Even so, Martha, like the disciples and like Mary in our passage, did not make the connection that the raising of Lazarus pointed forwards to what would happen with Jesus himself soon after and how the last days would begin with him. So while Mary watched Jesus dying on the cross, for example, she wasn't thinking, oh, just you wait. Just you wait. He raised Lazarus from the dead. A few days' time, he'll be up in Adam too. No. No one. Not his scattered disciples. Not Mary. Not anyone. Despite having witnessed Lazarus resurrected. And think about that. They could have talked to Lazarus about it. None of them expected Jesus to be raised from the dead himself, despite everything they saw him do and teach. And they witnessed a lot. 
So John and Peter have gone home, and Mary, remaining behind, looked in the tomb for herself. And there she saw two angels sitting on the burial slab, one where Jesus' head had been and another where his feet had been. Now, in Matthew's account, the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, accompanied by an earthquake, which, by the way, is a typical sign of the day of the Lord that had shown up, that the last days had begun. And the angel rolled away the stone, and the Roman guards who were, who were there to guard against the body being stolen, uh, they passed out because of fear of him. And, and Matthew describes the angel as appearing like lightning, adorned in white as snow clothing, which is very much like the cherubim. And in turn, he announced Jesus' resurrection to the women and told them to go tell the disciples about it. In Mark, there is much less detail. Even so, the, the women see the angel in the tomb who announces the resurrection to them. In Luke, two angels announce the resurrection to the women. So these, these different details, as German scholars have argued, I guess, for the last 300 years, don't add up to contradictory or rival accounts any more than historians talking about different aspects of the Civil War are talking about two different events. It's rather that, that each writer focused on or highlighted certain aspects about the same event. And with John, as we've seen, he, he wants us to see the tomb theologically. We've been talking about his death and now the, the tomb and the resurrection in this, just this vein, now for what, a month and a half? or more. This is how John has crafted his, his gospel account. He wants us to see it theologically. So instead of a place of death and defilement, this tomb has become a new holy of holies and the launching point for the new creation. So let me show you how. The two angel in John's account perched on either side of the burial slab are a new Ark of the Covenant in a new holy of holies. See, the holy of holies in the tabernacle and then in the temple represented the throne room of God. And God, in turn, met with the high priest once a year in that most holy place. Outward from there was what was known as the holy place. So you have the holy of holies, and then out from that is the holy place, which then extended outward into the outer chamber of the temple. And so the temple itself was a representation of the Garden of Eden, where God met with humanity. So with the Garden of Eden, it's this area, but then there's sanctuary right in the middle of the Garden of Eden where the two trees were and where God met with, with Adam and Eve. That's why, for example, the lampstand is in the holy place and it represents the tree of life. So just tuck all that away. The Garden of Eden, the temple, and the tabernacle were all places where God met with his people by the way that he designed, and he set forth the parameters for that, where heaven and earth came together, and, and the connections of those places, as you read them, they're not random. They're intentional. And they don't stop with the Old Testament either. You see the culmination of the pattern of heaven and earth coming together, where God meets with his people, complete with the tree of life, at the end of the book of Revelation. And that's on purpose. But I want to focus on the Ark of the Covenant for a moment. The Ark, which was in the Holy of Holies, was a, a big rectangular box made of, of wood and, and overlaid with gold. And the lid or the cover of that box is often translated as the mercy seat. And it wasn't so much a, a seat 
as it was a footstool. And on that spot is where God atoned for the sins of his people. Now, on either side of the mercy seat were the cherubim. And believe it or not, if you've ever seen the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, then you've seen a fairly accurate depiction of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. Uh, cherubim, or seraphim as they are, are sometimes called, have the purpose of serving as guardians of God's throne room. It's why they guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence and kept them from the tree of life. The Ark and the Holy of Holies is a symbol of what we see, for example, in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah was ushered into the throne room of God and surrounding God's throne were the seraphim, the burning ones as they're known, who proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's where that hymn, holy, 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 comes from. And as Isaiah comments, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, like the earthquake in Matthew, and the house was filled with smoke, like what we see on top of Mount Sinai with the glory cloud. And in response, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, we talked about this last week. So just as Israel feared God's glory, in particular, radiating, radiating off of Moses after he came down from Sinai, having been in the midst of God's glory. And just as only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year, so too Isaiah, as a sinful man, was terrified of coming into God's presence, and rightly so. But the death, death and resurrection of Jesus changed all of that. It changed all of that. So what should have been literally a dead end, a place of defilement and death, John wants us to see that it has become a place of atonement in the midst of the Holy of Holies. So Jesus' burial slab has become a new and better mercy seat, complete with real living cherubim. And so what was formerly barred from us, that is God's holy presence, is now open to us. The cherubim no longer guard the way to the tree of life. They invite us to it. And of course, the tree of life is, well, it's Jesus himself. So just as Adam and Eve were invited to eat with God in the garden, so we are now too through Jesus. It's why Matthew tells us that the curtain to the Holy of Holies and the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom at Jesus' death. See, Jesus, our great high priest, has torn down the dividing wall between God and man. So all of that is on display here. But Mary, who out of her devotion to Jesus is so engulfed in her grief, she cannot see the scene for what it is. So she doesn't notice the passed out guards. She's not overwhelmed by the angels. She's not moved by the earthquake. She just, she just wants to find Jesus' body and give him a proper burial. So when the angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? I, I don't think that was feigned ignorance. Like when you know, parents ask a child, oh, what's wrong? When they really know what's wrong. No, I think they were sincerely asking, why are you crying? 
do you see what we're seeing? And her answer was essentially, no, what are you talking about? They, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And I really sympathize with Mary in this moment. You know, sometimes it's really hard to see the reality of God's presence in the midst of our struggles. Sometimes it is really difficult to see that God's ways are the best ways when we are in this cacophony of competing voices for our hearts and minds. But you know, like with Job in his agony, in his misery, Jesus shows up. So it's appropriate that Mary would mistake Jesus for a gardener. Jesus is the new Adam at the wellspring of new creation in a place that has become a holy of holies in the midst of a garden of Eden. I mean, we just sang about this, that we've been entered into paradise because of Christ. And of course, paradise is the English word for Eden. So here we are, Jesus is here in paradise. Mary is with him, and Mary, like Eve, could hear God walking in the garden, but she did not recognize him. Now, there's debate over why Mary did not recognize him. Is it that, that she didn't have eyes to see Jesus in a way that Isaiah speaks about having eyes to see and ears to hear? Is it that she didn't recognize Jesus in his resurrected body? As we see elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus sometimes veiled himself on purpose. And we, when people did recognize him, he was both the same guy, but he was also clearly changed. And Paul talks about the resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm not going to handle that now. I encourage you to go read that if you're interested. Or is it maybe her lack of recognition, like with her reaction to the angels, that she's just so engulfed by her grief that she just can't make sense of it all? Well, I'm not exactly sure which one best describes the event, event, maybe some version of all three. But trying to figure out this reason absolutely misses John's point. Mary could not find Jesus. Mary could not find Jesus, even when he was right in front of her, even when she was in a veritable Garden of Eden, having looked into the Holy of Holies. She could not find him. And so often when we are in the deepest, darkest places, that's how it is. So Jesus comes looking for her. Jesus comes looking for her. And like the angels, Jesus asked, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And this seems like a simple question, and I suppose it is, and maybe the best questions that God asks us are incredibly simple, but it harpens back to Eve in the garden, and, and it's the quintessential question all of us face all the time. Who do you love? What do you treasure? Who or what do you look to for your security or your meaning or for value? Or perhaps most poignantly, whose voice do you listen to? So Mary, a descendant of Eve, who had experienced God's mercy and kindness, was seeking after God's Son, even as she could not find him on her own. And she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So even though by all appearances to her, Jesus was dead and gone, still, this tells you something important about her. She's still devoted to him. And in response, Jesus simply says, Mary. 
He calls her by name, and in a moment, everything changes. And she answers with, Rabboni, that is my teacher. And this is a, a tender and a compassionate moment, and it's indicative of how kind and patient our God really is. And it's like the description of God's chosen servant in Isaiah 42. It says, Behold my servant who, whom I uphold. This is God speaking. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So, so do you get that imagery there? Jesus is not harsh with his people. That's not to say he doesn't discipline. That's missing the point. He's not harsh with his people. No, he is gentle with his, his sheep, especially when they are wounded and they are broken. So he doesn't wait for Mary to figure it out. He doesn't break her spirit for not seeing him. No, like what we see in Psalm 23, he restores her soul. It's like what Jesus teaches in John 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So Jesus knew his sheep. He knew Mary and he came for her. He came for Mary. He laid down his life for Mary and Mary knew the voice of her shepherd. Now we read in verse 17 that, that Jesus said to Mary, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And we can infer from that that Mary must have grabbed hold of Jesus. And I have to imagine it was very much like a bear hug. And Jesus responded in like kind. I think Jesus responded in like kind. The picture you get of Jesus in the Gospels is that he is very affectionate with people. And I think that's right. By telling her, though, to let go of him, I don't think he was being cruel or saying it was inappropriate or that it was bad to hug him. He was actually indicating that a deeper knowledge of him would soon come after his ascension into heaven when the Holy Spirit would be poured out. And though it had to have been hard to believe, how can you know Jesus deeper than that moment? Mary would be able to cling to Jesus more deeply through the giving of the Spirit. Jesus had taught the same thing to his disciples at the Last Supper when they expressed a real concern and real fear about him talking about leaving them. And notice how he puts it. He says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus has made us sons and daughters of God the Father. That's not figurative. It's real. We enjoy those same privileges. So we look forward to, when we talk about the marriage feast of the Lamb, we look forward to the day when face to face we will really and truly eat with God the Father. That's what the Lord's Supper celebrates. That's why eating is a central part of Christian worship. You know, words really can't describe just what a big deal this is. I spent a lot of time trying to 
you know, crafts and paragraphs. I just didn't get it. Words can't describe just what a big deal this is, that we have been made part of the family of God and what God has done for us in Jesus and his death and resurrection. He's going to do for us too. That's what's coming. And so having restored Mary to himself, Jesus sends her out. He sends her out like a redeemed Eve to be like Lady Wisdom of the Proverbs, calling out to his disciples the good news of the resurrection. And if ever there was a group of men who should be inclined to listen, who should easily heed Lady Wisdom's call, it's these men. So will they listen? We're going to see. So again, who we listen to is a serious question. And I raise it often in sermons, not merely because it shows up in Genesis 3 and the Bible never stops asking that question, but because it's arguably the question we most often face day in and day out. Who do you worship? Most people in America don't think they worship anything, but everyone worships. Everyone worships. Who do you belong to? Which voices or influences do you find yourself most often responding to or being drawn to? It's like what Reverend Nick Batzig recently commented on Twitter. I think we're doing almost exactly verse by verse the same sermon series right now. And he said this this morning. I thought, this is so helpful. I'm going I'm to quote him. He said, when the gospel is faithfully preached in the assembly of the saints, which I hope it has been this morning, the risen and living Christ is calling his people back to himself in the same way as he was calling Mary to himself outside the garden tomb. So in all the cacophony of our modern existence, and y'all, it's loud, there is one voice who knows you by name. One voice who gave himself for you. One voice who has promised you life forever with, with him. And, and you know his name. You know his name, but more so, and this is the key, he knows your name. He knows your name and he will never stop calling for you and he will never stop coming for you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. A God who through his son has made us your children. Not figuratively, but literally. We belong to you just as Jesus belongs to you. Thank you for this grace and this kindness and this mercy. Lord, we will enjoy it forever. In this life, for sure, there are hardships and it is often painful and full of misery, but we know this is not the end. We know there is so much to come and that life is beautiful and good. Thank you for this. We pray all of this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.